Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Today's episode is an absolute cracker. In today's episode, I've just finished speaking to Damon Hart, the Executive Vice President, Chief Legal Officer and Company Secretary at Liberty Mutual. Damon takes us through his journey to Liberty Mutual in 2014 and then his rise to the ranks of being the most senior legal officer there. There's a lot we talk about. The difference between teams in a law firm and the in-house team um, and the description that um, uh, Damon gives there to law firm team, he calls them, it's more like a golf team where everyone's looking at their individual score. I love that. It's the first time I've heard that. Couldn't resist that. Um, enterprise leadership and what that means to Damon and, and essentially the not just being asked the legal questions, the, the trusted advisor role to the CEO and the C-suite, the priorities of a legal department, the GC priorities that we hear a lot on this podcast and get Damon's uh, view on that. And we do a bit of a deeper dive on the impact of ChatGPT and other language learning models and the importance of responsible AI and the impact that we think that's going to have and that Damon thinks that's going to have on the legal industry. And also as a legal department, this all kind of dovetails together, the importance of continuing to demonstrate value and what that means and how that changes over time, given what technology can now do and certainly is predicted to do. And finally, we wrap up with one of my favourite topics, growth, personal growth coming from doing hard things. And we talk about how that is where the growth, the learning, the pride and the opportunity really is. And my encouragement to you and others out there to always take the harder path. So anyway, in the usual fashion, sit back chillax and enjoy the episode. Damon Hart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. We're going to have a blast. Uh, Looking forward to this discussion. Jim, it's so good to be here with you. Thanks for the opportunity to have a conversation. Fantastic, Damon. If you've listened to any of my podcasts, you'll know I usually kick off with saying, Damon, you weren't always the most senior legal officer at Liberty Mutual. There was a story before that. Take us through a little bit of the Damon Hart, you know, career arc and maybe some kind of key turning or inflection points that have set you on the course that you are on today. When I came out of law school, I started as kind of a a general litigator. I was in big law. I was at Holland and Knight uh, for the first 11 years of my career. And it was a great experience for me because I was kind of like an omnivore in terms of uh, litigation. Um, Pretty much everything uh, from the first case I ever tried was a slip and fall case. And that same year, I had a patent trial where I was like uh, the 10th lawyer on a huge bet the farm kind of case and kind of everything in between. I got to really cut my teeth and learn about a lot of different types of cases Um, I got uh, a chance to really appear in court as well, because although I was in a big law firm with a thousand or so lawyers in like 40 offices, I also, they had just acquired a smaller firm. And so there were smaller clients, more local matters that um, I got a chance to kind of be out front on in addition to kind of being in the the trenches as well. 
I always kind of minored in employment law. And then after I became a partner, I, um, I went from minoring in it to majoring in employment law and really kind of, it became a focus of mine. Went to a couple other firms after that, a couple other national firms uh, focused on employment. The big change for me was I heard about a job here at Liberty Mutual managing the employment law group um, in 2014. Um, I knew Liberty Mutual well for a lot of reasons. One being my mother worked for Liberty Mutual in a field office in claims uh, growing yep. up. And um I knew that I wanted to go in-house for the right kind of role at the right kind of company. And all of that came together in, in 2014. And I came to Liberty Mutual, uh, as I said, to manage the employment law group, did that role for about uh, four or five years, and then uh, was promoted in to run the corporate uh, litigation group. Uh, did that for a few years. Uh, and then I was uh, named the successor to become the chief legal officer and was in a transitional role until I took over my current role in uh, beginning of 2022. Lots of bits that I'd love to dissect there. Sure. Firstly, that early part of your career, um, you're getting what sounds like um, is a great mix of both large matters as well as cutting your teeth at kind of front line, yes. um, small matters. And that's something which often you don't get to do as a junior attorney. And yeah. it's a fantastic mix when I think about people I've recruited into you know, my litigation teams during my career, that mix was kind of special because the person actually understood um, how a large matter is to be run, but they also were at the front line um, yeah. and getting the, and being responsible essentially for ru running a matter, getting in front of the um, judge and taking complete responsibility. So it, it sounds like to me that mix for you kind of, um, uh, put you in good stead, I suppose, for the next phase in your career. Does, does, does that make sense? Is that and is that something that you would be saying to those earlier in their career um, to see if they can good, especially if you're in litigation, to see if you can get a good mix of? Yeah, no, I thought it was really great, and I, I didn't necessarily appreciate how unique it was at the time. Yeah. But certainly, as you said, to have the chance to be out front, to take depositions early on, to argue motions early on, to have actually a trial early on helped me see step back and see the whole litigation process. So when I was more plugged into a piece of it on a bigger matter, I understood yeah. like what the importance of, you know, interrogatory answers are and how they're used down the line and why yeah. you do all this discovery. So I think it gave me a, a broad perspective. Um, and then, you know, it was a great, thing for me because uh, the bigger cases allowed me to be productive. So, you know, in terms of having a billable hour requirement and all of that, I had cases yeah. that, you know, demanded that that type of work. Yeah. And then the smaller cases where I had to be more efficient, but I had a different role. It was just a great way to learn. Yeah. Um, you know, and I had a lot of great mentors and folks that helped me kind of understand not only the practice of law, but the business of law. And so it was just a really ripe experience for me. At the time that you had transitioned to in-house, did you set yourself a goal? I want to be the GC, the SVP, the most senior legal officer yep. wherever I'm going. Was that a kind of a goal for you? And if that, if so, how did you, how did you kind of set your sights and what are the things yep. you did um, to to maximize the prospect, I suppose, of achieving that goal? 
Yeah, I'd say I didn't come to Liberty Mutual with the express goal of becoming the chief legal officer of Liberty Mutual. But I will say when I was in school, I was really thinking a lot about what do I want to do with my life, right? And I always knew I would want to be a leader. And I wanted, like, that's something that's in me. Um, and so I couldn't necessarily tell you the exact role or the yeah. exact company or even the exact industry that I wanted to have a role like this. But I'm not at all surprised that I'm in a role like this at this point in my life. Um, I'm very grateful to have had the opportunities to build a career towards this. Um, but I'm not surprised because that's kind of what I was really interested yep. in is, is leadership and, and that sort of thing. I will say in particular, having a chance to really get to know one client really well and to identify with that client is something that I was interested in with going in-house. I'm a big team sports guy. You know, I played sports throughout high school and in college. And the whole idea of like, when you're in a law firm, you're kind of, it's a team, but it's kind of a golf team. Like you're all looking at your own score, right? <laughs> I love that's, that's the first time I've heard that analogy or that description. And I love it. It's like perfect, You're all right? looking at your own score. Yeah, you're all looking at your own score because yeah. you're saying, all right, as long as I score well, I should yeah. do well. Whereas yeah. An in-house legal department is more of a traditional team where yeah. we have roles, yeah. we have specific roles. My job might be on this play to block or, yeah. you know, my, my maybe I get to carry the ball. Um, yeah. Maybe I pass. Maybe I maybe I'm I'm I, 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 I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a decoy. Right. Because we're all pulling in the same direction. Everybody, yeah. e even folks outside of the legal department, we're all trying to get to one goal. Uh, that is an organizational enterprise goal. Um, that was interesting to me. I'd say the other thing is kind of a broader value proposition for me. Um, you know, in a law firm, it's really a production kind of metric that you're judged on, yep. which is fine. But I felt like it was a bit limiting for what I had to offer as a leader, as a person in the community, as a developer of people, as a manager of people, as well as work. And to really get to know a client and help push the client's goals forward, I felt like it offered all of that. So, so we will come back to that question of law firm production metrics yep. um, and what that actually looks like today. But before we get there, stepping back, okay, so you've, um, you're have you now the Chief Legal Officer at Liberty Mutual. L let me identify from the discussions that um, we've had with people in your position Damon, what what the priorities are? I'd love to list those priorities out. I'd just love to get your take on them and and what are we missing? So I'm just going to list them all out. So typically we hear about managing risk, number one, typically um, controlling costs, driving efficiency, taking care of my people, DE and I, um, and ESG. So. Talk to me just, now I've listed a, a number, are, are they the kind of, talk to me about how you think about priorities and how, you know, are they relevant? Um, uh, are they all encompassing? Am I missing anything um, around there? As you look out and, and continue to drive the team forward, get the best out of every, everyone. And, and and I'm going to talk a little bit about this. And also, oh, we talk about future-proofing the department too, <laughs> Um, what is that? So talk about that and your vision uh, around there, Damon. 
Well, I, I think it's a really good list. I'm not surprised given how many yeah. conversations you've had with, uh, you know, a lot of really talented um, uh, GCs and CLOs. It's, uh, you know, absolutely manage risk is at the top of the list. Uh, we think of ourselves as kind of the consciousness of the organization um, in terms of our in terms of our conduct and, and the way we do business uh, around the globe. Um, so managing risk is really important, but it's much more than that. And I love that you put in here things like cost controls and efficiency and taking care of people. And when I think of my people, I think of the 50,000 that work for Liberty Mutual. And, and you know, we've gone through the last few years with a, a world global pandemic and all these other issues um, that are that are happening outside of the organization that people are all living through and bringing to work. Um, I think it's important to think about taking care of, of, of our people in the most sense. I, I don't necessarily say it's missing from your list, but I'd say enterprise leadership, being part of the C-suite team. And when I was a deputy general counsel, I always thought part of my job was helping the CLO run the legal department. Now that I'm the CLO, I think a big chunk of my job is helping the CEO and the other executive team run the organization and um, and to help us be our best. Now, under that is a lot of what you've talked about, managing risk, cost controls, drive efficiency, um, be integrity, uh, all of that stuff. Um, but it's a little bit of a different way that it comes out because sometimes it's not legal. It's just you know, uh, you kind of know you're doing your job well as a lawyer when someone wants your opinion on something that's not strictly outside. Yeah. 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 So someone says, I'm about to do this. Let me know your thoughts. Uh, I, here's a communication I'm planning to send. Not, I don't need legal review. Someone on the team has already reviewed that. What do you think? How does it strike you? Um, those types of things at the C-suite level are another part of the job to kind of you know, how are we going to lead this organization uh, forward? That leaning on your experience, your judgment, okay? The C-suite, trusting your judgment, that's exactly where you and, you know, other chief legal officers, that's where you want to be. Yeah. Um, I'm trusted for my judgment. Um, the, um, the, the rest is almost, I'm not going to call it table stakes, but you've got to get the rest right. You've got to manage your risks. You've got to control costs. You have to do all of that right. The difficult decisions, you know, it's always great, but there's a lot of grey and legal is only one factor, if at all, on the right decision to make. I love that you're talking about this because when I was doing my transition, I actually broke it up into different domains like that. And it was like, what did I need to really focus on? As an enterprise leader, what did I need to work on as a leader of legal? And then what did I need to work on just personally that I needed to to, to deliver um, for the organization? And so, you know, one of the things under that kind of enterprise level was be a trusted advisor to the yeah. my peers in the C-suite. Like I should be that, um, the kind of things we talked about, about, you know, not purely legal decisions and having them seek out my advice. That's when I know I'm kind of in that sweet spot. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot there for for aspiring CLOs to think about. You know, it's a, it's a it's just relationships. It's more than just it's more than them liking me, right? Yeah. Because Correct. These are heavy duty decisions. It's more yeah. about 
trust. Um, it's more about listening. I mean, that's a, one of the most underrated skills for a lawyer and that for an executive and for a leader is to really listen. Um, I once said to my team that CLO means chief legal officer, but it, it also means chief listening officer. Yeah. And, and I've talked about this before, Damon. It's a really hard skill. We often think we're listening, but we're just preparing our answer. Yes. We're just thinking how we're going to respond. We're thinking how we're going to solve the immediate question that that we think is coming up. Yes. Um, and calling it, I think some people got active listening, whether it's at the C-suite, whether it's with your children, yes. whether it's with very close friends, employees, whatever it might be, that it's a, if you get it right and you learn, it's a superpower. Yes. Um, and be able to then respond thoughtfully. And sometimes it actually doesn't need a response. Sometimes somebody just wants you to listen. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm glad you called it out. You're absolutely right. We, and I still find myself thinking about what I'm going to answer or what my next question, whatever it might be. Um, but it's, um, it, it's something you should build that muscle as early as you can in your career and just strengthen it as you go along because, it, because it's so, it's, I think it's underappreciated, but incredibly highly valued, mm -hmm. um, when you find it. I love it. And I think you've really put your finger on it because, a few years ago, I had, um, I'm kind of a junkie for personal development, professional development. So I've had a ton of 360s and all of this. And one of my earlier ones after getting to the company, I, you know, it was one of those ones where they talked to my directs, they talked to my peers, they talked to my um, superiors. And it was interesting because they had these comments and both listed as a strength and an area of opportunity was listening. And I like took that home for the weekend, like what, this doesn't make any sense, right? But then I figured it out because um, we all, during the course of a day, we all have the meeting that I just had and the meeting that I'm about to have. And then I'm here with you right now. And I realized that there were times when I was either, as you say, thinking of what I was going to say next, or I was like, oh, I got the CEO next on this big issue and I'm already there nervous yep. about that. Right. Or, you yep. know, um, you know, tomorrow I have a big town hall that I have to stand up and deliver on. So how do I be present? And that's yep. like that third L that third part of my transition plan that I really thought about my own personal, like wellness, my own personal focus, all of that. Like it takes a lot to be focused. And as you said, it's, it's a skill that you should start early often it doesn't just pay off at work it pays off in every area of your life if you can be present and listen it's a constant struggle we all typically those who are kind of high achieving driven they got strong career paths you know from, from your domestic what at home situation it is kids grow up really quick opportunities that you miss and boy there are countless many for me to really be present not to be thinking about whatever's happening on the mobile device, which is close by, all of that. It's a constant struggle, but we have to, Damon, it's, it's, it's important for your career, but it's so important for your own mental health, 
your own personal um, well development and and happiness um, because you deprive yourself. You know, I, t- I was just talking a few minutes ago about the most precious commodity in the world is time, and those bits of time that you have with your family, with your friends, to genuinely really be present and focus on being present, lose that, um, then and that's a lost opportunity. You, you might get another one, but again, as time, as that commodity gets more and more scarce, it's a really important life lesson. There's a, another mental health benefit from that, and that is it keeps you from worrying about like what's next because you're present. Yeah. And I, I like to say my job has enough issues for the day. And I'm grateful when I have enough energy and know-how and understanding to it to deal with these issues. And some of it is me answering questions and making decisions. Some of it is me getting other people involved in creating an environment in which we can make those decisions. But um, I actually don't have the capacity to really think about the issues that are going to hit my desk next week until I yep. get to next week, right? <laughs> Good. The capacity and the recognition, and this is a really empowering thing for me too, recognizing what is in your control and what's outside of your control. Now, what's going to happen next week is typically outside of your control. And then I always talk and I say this to my kids, life is not about what happens to you, it's about how you respond and yes. how you react to what happens to you. So it's a little bit the same. There's a lot of stuff that's outside your control. Recognizing what that is, it is really empowering recognizing there are certain things that you can't change and then focusing on what you can control and then focusing on how you react <laughs> to what you can control. Because once you've got that, then I think a lot of stuff, a lot of the problems can fall away because you don't waste energy worrying about stuff that either um, is, um, you can't foresee, you know, because yeah. you're kind of trying to predict or that's happened, but you can't change. A lot of that, unfortunately, comes with age. Because yeah. you know, you know what they say about youth—it's wasted on the young. Yes. Hey, we know that. I love this, Jim. Jim, you've taken me into a, a meta conversation at a deeper level than I anticipated. So this is great. I, I love this kind of stuff. Good, good, good. Let's switch to your point in relation to life at a law firm. Um, and the law firm, what you call production metrics. And I know by that you mean really, you know, how much time can you build? One I was going to ask about is basically the challenges that you see moving forward for chief legal officers. But I want to tie that into what has become really topical in the last couple of months. And that is what we think about AI, the chat GPTs of the world and other language learning models, how we see that impacting um, uh, the role of a lawyer, an in-house function, and then potentially how it impacting your relationship with law firms. Mm-hmm. We've been gazumped by the likes of the chat GPTs of the world that will, I think, annihilate time as a currency of value. Talk to me about challenges around the future for CLOs, what, how you're thinking about AI and the chat GPTs, and perhaps how you think that might impact law firms and Liberty Mutual's relationships or in-house teams' relationship with law firms? Something I think about a lot. You mentioned some of the top uh, imperatives for CLOs and and, and drive efficiency and cost containment. I mean, if you look at on a graph, 
demand for legal services has gone up and has continued to go up. I think really for the first time, business leaders have looked at legal and said, we need you to really operate more like the rest of the business. Yeah. You used to be able to get a pass to say, yep. legal, we're different. And now they're yep. saying, you know what? You're really not that different. Yep. Now we have enough data about what it is you do and how you do it that we can prove that you're not that different. Yeah. Um, and so the whole model of a bespoke solution to every bespoke problem dead along with the, yeah. the death of the billable hour, which though we've been celebrating the death of the bill, billable hour for a long time and it hasn't yet happened yet. I thought no. it actually was going to have a big disruption and quite differently. I, I think when you talk specifically about the chat GPTs and large language models, they are particularly relevant for the legal practice and what it is that we do. And the more I understand about the way they work, the more I see a tremendous amount of potential there. Yeah. Just the name, large language model. So yeah. language is like, that's what we do. We have a whole team of lawyers that right now, they're over there working on language, policy yeah. language. Does this fit this scenario? Yeah. Um, and also, you know, precedent and all the things that have happened before, all of those things are very germane to legal practice and coming up with legal judgment. And so you have a tool that is able to munch all that data. That's my own technical term. Then predict what's next. Yeah. And so that is a per that is a very powerful tool, I think, in the law. Um, and there's a lot of the one of the things that does well is is summarize. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you think about uh, one of the things I did early on was summarize depositions, you know, yeah. um, summarize this, this pile of discovery. Like that's what I did for hours. Yeah. Um, and I know, Jim, yeah. you guys have worked on tools and things like that that do that much more efficiently. So yeah. it's fundamentally changed the engagement yeah. with the work. But I think there's a tremendous uh, potential unlock with it. It's going to be bumpy. It's not going to be a straight line. We're going to jerk forward and then slow down and then we're going to we're going to make some mistakes. We're going to, as our um, chief information officer, Monica Caldas says, we're going to skin our knees sometimes on this. I just don't want to break the legs. Right. I want to skin our knees and figure out how to how to fall and go and go forward. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. We will. But that is innovation. Yeah. It's never a smooth path. It's never a, it's never a direct path and it's never a straight line. Yeah. That's part of the excitement. That's part of the challenge. There's no doubt about the impact that it will have in the long term. Um, exactly what that, how long that's going to take, and um, what the specifics are. But I mean, the, the you know, ChatGPT and other language learning models have taken, from, to my mind, the very, the very skill or a core skill set of legal. Which is the which is the language bit, yeah, and it's basically leapfrogged it, and so there's a lot of things that I think that was was done, you know, at at all of the drafting stages, whether it's the drafting of the advice, whether it's the drafting of the summaries, whether it's the drafting of the first draft of the policies, mm -hmm. that that work has the potential. The first drafts of that has the potential to be entirely automated. Mm -hmm. um, just last week, Damon, we had um, uh, I had a webinar 
uh, when Shannon Klinger, with Shannon Klinger, who was the um, who is the uh, chief legal officer at Moderna, and she um, and the whole topic was how AI is going to impact on the in-house team. So we had one thousand five hundred people register that oh. webinar. I think our maximum before that has literally been two or three hundred. Wow. Um, so, so that, but that shows you, and she had some incredible examples. Um, about the basically the first pass, if you like, and sometimes the final draft that she was able to create um, or her team with ChatGPT. So there's there's going to be what I call that generative work that typically the first, second, third, fourth, perhaps year lawyer did. I think a lot of that's going to be automated. What does that mean for training? Who knows? Um, it will mean that the expertise right at the very top, which is, if you like, um, settling the final version of the advices or reviewing the drafts or so forth, there's absolutely going to be a need for that. But I just wonder whether the, I wonder whether the model's going to change so that you pay premium for that bit um, and that you're not paying anything, almost not paying anything for the stuff that can be generated almost automatically. I even suggested on the webinar is should in-house teams now change their billing guidelines with law firms so that you're not allowed now, so law firms shouldn't charge for anything that says drafting, summarising, anything that you can automate, should you be insisting? Well, hang on, why aren't you using tools out there subject to privacy, confidentiality and so forth? So... It's going to be interesting, Damon, to see how it pans out. But I can see that shifting, and I can see, I can see the in-house community really asking their law firms, "Well, hang on, how are you using now mm-hmm. um, AI tools to make your delivery of your service um, faster, stronger, better? And do I need to be paying for what I used to pay for, which was just kind of run-of-the-mill, but important and needed to be done?" but now that a large language learning model can do. And there were members of my team, part of that 1500. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I wasn't able to make it, but I, I, um, I've sent your note around and, and made sure that, that we had people present because it's so fantastic. timely. I love what you're saying about extracting some of the value out of services that we used to pay for and making that cheaper. If you think about how, like in the... 80s. How did you get stuff from the court? You paid a messenger or a para or a junior to go get a copy of it, right? And you used to go in there and they had a whole copy room and you would go and they would give you, the clerk would give you the file and you would go and you would copy that. You would bring it back and some client was paying $100 an hour for that person to go do that, right? Then the internet, right? And now you know, no one pays for that because you can click three times and get that document to your desktop. I think this is a very similar change that's happening. And like you said, it's automating a lot of things that we used to pay for. There's still a need for judgment. I mean, one of the things to think about, I've been thinking a lot about is kind of responsible AI. And one of the principles of it is that there has to be a human involved. Um, it's not something that yeah. you can just pass along without reviewing it because there's hallucination, yeah. there's misinformation yep. that's out there um, that the uh, the algorithms might be um, uh, ingesting as a part of its you know solution. So yep. there's a lot of that to think about, and I think 
um, the legal department, you know, the first thing you listed was manage risk, right? Yeah. So we yep. still have to be thoughtful about all of that. Um, but I think it's something that we all have to figure out a way to safely utilize because there's yeah. huge unlocks. I mean, just just the things that I'm that we can talk about now and we're thinking about now, but what is the level two stuff that, yeah. you know, we haven't even got to yet because we Good haven't talked to it yet. Yeah. And, and, and the, the genie is out of the bottle. Um, yes. there's, there's, there's no going back now. Now it's all going to be about, you're absolutely right. Responsible. I mean, there was an article you might've seen, I think it was in this week's papers about the lawyer who did their research and submitted a brief based entirely on um, the search and chat GPT. And, of course, all the cases were hallucinations. Um, Now, now, and, of course, there's been a lot of airtime around that example, but it's an irresponsible use case. You're going to check your work, just like you're going to check the junior researcher or the junior lawyer's research work. Ultimately, it is about responsible use and defining for each of us, what does that actually mean? I love what you said too about like, how does it change the relationship with law firms? I mean, it does change a little bit of what we're looking for. Um, I think if you show up to a legal department as sophisticated as the one that I have the privilege of managing is without any kind of technology and you just say things like, Oh, you know, we know the judge as well in these jurisdictions or we've handled this or that. That's kind of not enough. Um, It's like, especially when I put how many, how many judges have you guys tried cases in front of versus the data that we can pull on these judges behaviors? Like it's night and day. It's like orders of magnitude different. And so you think about what are you as a law firm using to differentiate yourself? And I love what you said earlier about the, the perils of the billable hours, that it puts us at odds. You know, you have people yeah. who get paid on how many hours you bill, and yeah. then you have people that are buying based on how can we deliver efficient legal services. So it's interesting because I think about I've always worked on kind of the corporate side of the house. I was always yeah. defense, always that sort of thing. And I think about the plaintiff's bar is much more aligned in terms of the interests of the lawyer and the interests yeah. of the client. It, you know, it's clear. Like, I don't get paid unless you get paid. And the more I get paid, the more the more you get paid, the more I get paid, right? We're at odds a bit. I describe it as one values time, the other values outcomes. Mm-hmm. The two shall never meet. Yeah. Or if they do meet, it's kind of fortuitous. Yeah. Yeah. But what I am predicting now, happy to predict, is the demise of time as the currency of value. Mm-hmm. There will be places because where it's still a currency of value because it's clear that that time is relevant and directly attributable to outcomes or expertise or whatever it might be. But as a general proposition, time is no longer. Um, uh, a currency of value, and I think I think the industry, the whole legal industry, will go through to redefining what does value actually mean mm-hmm. um, uh, in legal, especially when all of that generative work can do so much of what we used to do. Yeah, Jim, what do you think? Why is it taken so long for that type of disruption? I mean, I know this is a real inflection point that changes. Yeah fundamentally everything but what do you think yeah. it's because i it's funny i've been thinking about this same i think up until now 
I think technology um, and efficiency has been kind of a choice mm. for the in-house teams and and GCs and CLOs, and they've been it's been a choice, okay, um, and because we've all grown up and been so, so used to and comfortable with the ills and of the old model. We were trained in that world. We transitioned out into another world, you into the um, in-house team. But, you know, there's part of your DNA that's in there. It's hard. So, so technology and choice and efficiency, which is diametrically opposed to the way that old model works, it's, it's hard to kind of disentangle. Okay, but here's what I th- why I think this is an inflection point. I think now, and even the kind of turn up we had at the webinar last week tells me that I don't think the legal profession will continue to think that technology is a choice and mm. efficiency is kind of a choice. I think, and Shannon says that this really well, she calls it a question of survival for mm. the legal department. And why? Because I put a proposition to her, I said, Pretend I'm McKinsey or Bain and Co. or Big Four, and I'm going to come to the CEO, and I've got a new value proposition based on generative AI. And my new value proposition is I'm going to redesign your entire legal department and the processes there, and I will take out 20, 30, 40, 50% because I'll be able to automate and I'll be doing a lot of that drudgery and a lot of the work that now can be done using AI and language learning models. Now, so, so and I said, it, it, I asked Shannon, is that, am I, it, respond to that. And she said, absolutely. We as GCs and legal departments need to be ahead of the game so that we can be seen. That is exactly what we are doing to our own legal departments, to our own legal teams, providing them with basically, sometimes we think safety is not bringing in automation, not bringing digitizing because we're then saving jobs. But in fact, we're putting those at risk. So this comes back to, Damon, my sense is the inflection point is the fact that technology, efficiency, automation is no longer going to be a nice to have. People have seen very quickly because they've been able to play themselves on ChatGPT. They've been able to see very quickly, oh, this actually can be really impactful um, and we need to work out how we're going to pretend, probably just kind of operate and live in a new world before someone else does. That's my prediction and that's where I think um, and those accelerants, if you like, ChatGPT, I think is just an accelerant for a recognition that technology um, is going to drive changes that are inevitable in legal as well as other other industries. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's absolutely, and I think the scenario that you just painted with the consultants uh, yeah. is, it's not uh, hypothetical. It it's is not too far-fetched. Yeah, it's not yeah. too far-fetched. I yeah. think it's, um, it's real. I think it's here. I think it is interesting when you think like, if we go back maybe a decade and you think about, we we really couldn't predict that these large language models would get this good. I mean, we had Siri and we had Alexa yeah. and all of that. That's a version of it. Um, but we thought we would be in autonomous vehicles probably before we've gotten to Correct. have a tool like this. 
So it's kind of just interesting, kind of the time yeah. we're living in and yeah. how certain things are moving faster. Uh, but to your point about you know efficiency and any large legal department does lots of of whatever it is, contracts, cases, yeah. it is, and so I think the business is saying, well, what value do you bring? And am I still comfortable paying what I used to pay when, you know, it's like, it's like memory every year, computer memory goes down in cost, right? So why am I paying the same amount than I used to pay? You should be getting more efficient. We as a business are getting more efficient. You should be getting more efficient. And so Tools like ChatGPT, and I love the way you just said it at the end of the last question, was because it's just a part of a whole suite of tools that are here now for use in legal that weren't really possible even five years ago. Yeah. As I was also say, too, why is it that your delivery of legal service or the delivery of all services is getting more efficient, yet that hourly rate keeps going up year yes. year <laughs> uh, uh, But but But... We'll need another podcast episode to get right into that one, Damon. All right. I'm going to wrap up, Damon, with a, with a couple of questions. Um, uh, one, changes that you would like to see um, in the legal industry. We've talked about, of course, the impact, potential impact of technology, ChatGPT. What are some other changes you'd like to see? I'd like to see even more diversity. Yep. It's so interesting to me if I looked at my career and looked at who have been the people that have been fighting for all of the, you know, uh, freedoms that we enjoy? It's lawyers. Um, And while lawyers are making the cases and changing the precedent and making life much better and all of those different things, we as an industry, we still have a lot of work to do in terms of making it truly a diverse, equitable and inclusive place. So I'd just like to see us keep pushing forward. And, you know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm all, anytime I get asked to speak, I'm always like, okay, what's the topic and can I be real? And to be yep. real, we're in a time where a yeah. diversity, equity, and inclusion is under attack. And yep. it's going to yep. take some resolve. And I think a lot of times it's going to be the, the lawyers, the CLO, the legal department that provides that fortitude to say, let's stay the course. This is the right thing to do. This is the right thing for our business, and it's going to make us more efficient, more innovative, more profitable, and a better place. So those are things I'd like to see more. Yep. I'd like to see us push, keep pushing on that. Hardest thing that you've ever, ever done, personal or professional, that you're prepared to share with us? It's a great question. So there's, there's a couple. In terms of a physical thing, I've been doing the Pan Mass Challenge a few times. It's a... It's a benefit for uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Yep. It's a, a very long bike ride. And I, you, we met in person, you know, I'm a big guy. Yep. So getting me on a bike for hundreds of miles is a lot. Um, and I've done it a couple different times, pieces of it. 2019, I did two days. I did 160 miles on a bike. Wow. Um, and I'm 6'6", six, six, uh, somewhere between 280 and 300 pounds at any given time, depending on where, you know, where I'm at. Um, and depending upon whether it's just after Christmas, just before yes, Christmas season. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's and, I, right. and, and I, and I did it. It was uh, my, my dad wow. had passed away in 2018 and I wanted wow. to do something for my health and also to benefit other people. I had a little cousin who 
Um, she beat uh, leukemia at a young age. So I dedicated myself to do it. I did the training. I did it. I've done pieces of it. This year I'm signed up to do 50 miles. Fantastic. Um, and, uh, and so that was the hardest physical thing I ever had to do. Yeah. The hardest thing I ever had to do professionally was very recent, actually. When I took over as chief legal officer, it was a, a personal professional confluence of challenges. Um, took over in the middle of a pandemic, toward the tail end of a pandemic, so emerging yeah. out of it. Uh, Russia, Ukraine happened a couple of weeks yeah. into my tenure. Um, but also personally, I've got two kids. My son uh, was trying to pick a college at the time, so I had a lot of visits with him. My daughter is a tremendous athlete, so I was flying around to tournaments with her, and my wife suffered a really terrible back injury. So she was grounded and she couldn't really get out of bed. And so I'm trying to learn a new job. I'm trying to lead a department remote, I'm trying to deal with the uh, impacts of a global conflict. I'm trying to learn still. Um, yeah. And literally every weekend for about 10 weeks, I was in another city, either with my son or my daughter, looking at schools or at a tournament or all of that. That's probably the hardest thing that I ever had to do is just a, a difficult yeah. time frame. But I'm a pretty optimistic guy, and I'm just grateful that I made it through that time frame. And, um, and I learned a lot. I learned one thing. I learned I can do hard things. It was hard, and I did it, right? That, that is the thing about hard things. You really learn what you can do. And when you look back, yeah. you, f you forget kind of how hard it was. You, you, what you remember is what you learned, the bond that yes. you develop with your son, your daughter, and you look back at that and that's what remains. Absolutely. And that is what is incredibly precious. And so I encourage everyone, people, it's the hard things where we find the growth, the learning, um, the opportunities and those moments that are, um, that are precious and they're the ones that you remember. And look, our natural inclination we all do it. I do it. What is an easier path? Yep. <laughs> um, and I say, and I say it to my kids, take the harder path. Sometimes, sometimes these one, but sometimes you've got to take the harder path because that's where the learning and that's where the growth is, and that's where the pride comes when you look back and you reflect and you look and you, you look at what you achieved. That's exactly what it sounds like for you. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. I love it, Damon Hart. This has been an absolute pleasure. We could go on, as you can tell, for hours, but we but we won't because everyone will fall asleep. So thank you so much for joining us. I've had an absolute blast, and uh, I think we need an install a second instalment to really dig deep on some of the topics we touched on. Well, my pleasure, Jim. It was great. I love meeting you and your energy, and it's been a pleasure and an honor to be here with you and have this conversation. Thanks. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.